This episode of the How to Get Your Shit Together podcast has been brought to you by my listeners, patrons, and friends. If you'd like to find out more about how you can support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash Zach P. Phillips. It's all too easy to become overwhelmed or awed by our idols and the stories and the mythology and, you know, their end result. When you, when you see a famous person or a successful person, it's very easy just to look at where they are now and go, wow, they were born into it. They're natural talent. And, you know, we make up all of these things to justify their position relative to us. The thing is, is that they, most, most people, if, you know, nearly everyone starts from a humble position, right? They start from less and they move to more. So we can look at where they've ended up and sort of from that end point justify how they got there. Not really taking into account or not really giving weight to the obstacles that they overcome. If you look into any successful person, into their past, into their journey, you can see that they've had so many different things that have happened to them. You know, they've had addiction issues. Their parents left them when they were young. They they survived a war. They immigrated somewhere, right? They survived trauma of some description. But because they're now successful, it's easy to go, okay, that issue that they have, that thing that they've overcome wasn't or mustn't have been that bad because look at what they were able to do. Do you, do you see the fallacy here? Do you see the idea that, well, <laughs> because they got to a certain place, now it, it sort of just post-justifies all of the stuff that they had to deal with. This is one of the things I keep in mind when I'm going on my journey for self-improvement. One of my goals, as you know, is to basically become a fiction author. I'm in the process of writing a book called Lucidity, and it's causing me a lot of stress. It's very hard. It's a hard process. I'm in the process of reading a bunch of different writing books and listening to podcasts and just getting better at the craft. But for lack of a better expression, I suck. I'm just not not good enough, not good yet. I'm getting better. I'm working on my voice. I'm practicing, yada yada yada. But it's hard. And in addition to that, you know, I have life stress. I have my traumatic past that has the mental ramifications. I have to work. I have family, etc., etc., etc. And sometimes, when I get down on myself, or I sort of when I start ruminating. It's easy to let all of those issues of my past and my current stresses and all of that sort of stuff, you know, financial, all of that, overwhelm me and make me feel like, oh, I can't do this. But then I think, and I've, I think about all of the successful people that have come before me in every different area, and I go, huh, okay, they all had problems. They all faced issues. And and for, for, to get more specific, I suppose, they're all human. You know, we all face the same mortality, the same limitations of the physical body, the same loss of people that we love, right? It's, we're all the same creature. So if other people have come before me and can push through what I have to push through in order, in order for them to be successful, surely I can do that myself. This, this, this sort of internal dialogue, this realization that everyone has their cross to bear, that everyone has to go through things to get to certain places keeps me going. It keeps me motivated. Does that mean that I'm going to be successful? Who knows? Only time will tell. And if, you know, if I'm not successful or I am successful in 10 years, we can look back at this podcast and go, hey, he was right, he was wrong, whatever. The point is, is that the only way for me to guarantee or at least 
you know, give myself more of a chance of success is to keep going through my problems. The, the other thing that I like to think of in this that sort of is a bit of a hindrance or a bit of a fallacy here is that we look back at the decisions these people make and give, once again, given where they've ended up, given their, you know, their, their, their greatness, and this could apply to like military generals, to, to authors, to business people, to whatever. It's like when you look at their end result or, you know, them at their peak, it's like they were operating with foresight. Because we're operating with foresight. We're looking back at them and going, huh, they obviously made the right decision, right? But how many people failed on the way through that, that could have been these great people had something catastrophic not have happened, right? We look at the decisions people make and even the, even the decisions that led to bad things and set them back and go, huh, well, given where they ended up, obviously they knew what they were doing all along. But once again, when you look into the autobiographies and the the backstory of people, they don't necessarily know. They have plans, they have ideas, they have concepts in their mind that they're working towards. They have theories about the world and theories about how to act and interact and all that sort of stuff. But they don't necessarily know where they're headed. But what do they do? They act and respond as they would in general. So what advice have I read about that I've looked at that goes, okay, I can take this and still act. You know, I don't know what's going to happen in my life. You know, touch wood, no one dies and the good things happen, but but eventually bad stuff's going to happen. Life stress will happen. Career changes happen. Think Things will happen that I have to address to move towards. I could choose to go down the, the, the podcasting route. I could choose to just stop everything that I'm doing online and just try and write a book, right? If... I do one of those those options and the, you know, 15 years later, I'm a world famous author or my podcast is huge or, you know, I've whatever, right? I'm successful in some measure. You could look back upon this decision and go, oh, that was the right choice because my success then proves my ability to choose. But unfortunately, given my state right now, I don't know where, which decisions will lead to the best results, right? If I roll the dice enough times and invest in shares, perhaps one of them will spike and I get rich, right? Did I know or am I just gambling? So with this lack of information, with this lack of grounding, how do I choose what to do? Really, the only the only true advice that I've I've that I can really sustain that I could keep going over the long term is to do the stuff that I enjoy doing. Just keep going down the path of fulfilling my curiosity, of following my passions. Because because I don't know where I'm going to end up. I can't afford to not follow my passion, right? I can't guarantee the the usefulness of following my passions, but you know, it's I, I can't live a life where I'm going to delay gratification for a potential payoff in the future. That you know, go down certain paths of of self expression, certain paths of creation, online content, whatever that I'm not enjoying now, just to get some riches later on. Maybe instead, I'd prefer to pursue interests and go after things that the process of doing that thing is enjoyable. So for me, reading fiction and writing fiction, whilst very challenging, is quite enjoyable. So will my book Lucidity ever be written? I predict so. Will it be good? I hope so. Will it make me famous? I ooh. <laughs> Will it sell much? Mm, I don't know, right? But that's not really the point. The point is, is that the process of attempting it, of doing it, 
is itself a fulfilling task, right? Why do I post all of the, you know, the one minute videos on Instagram? Or why am I sharing my dreams in the Lucid Dream Journal on Medium, right? Why am I doing these things? I'm doing them because I find them interesting. I'm I'm, I'm doing them for to help others. I'm doing them because I find them intriguing myself. If we, if we consider the, the Lucid Dreaming Journal stuff, right? I'm obviously going down the path of writing lucidity as a fiction book. It's based in the in a world where lucid dreams are connected. So I'm like, okay, I need to be thinking about my own dreaming ideas more. What am I dreaming about? So then I'm like, all right, with that in mind, let's make a medium publication where I can share and others, if they want to, their dreams. What does this do? Well, it gets me writing every day, gets me thinking about my dreams, um, and it gets me talking about lucid dreaming in general. So the writing ability to improve my writing ability is always good. And the concept of talking and connecting and sharing and discussing dreams and lucid dreaming itself improves my lucid dreaming ability. If you're not lucid dreaming or if you haven't heard of it, lucid dreaming is the ability to control, to become aware of when you're dreaming and to control your dreaming. And I find that very fun. It's a, it's a fun experience when you become lucid and when you start taking control of your dreams. So I'm like, let's do this and put this together. Sounds like a good idea. And I'm enjoying the process. I, I, any dream that I find interesting enough to share, I'll write up and sort of, I won't fictionalize it, but I'll try and make the retelling of the dream itself like I'm writing a short story. So I'm practicing, I'm getting better at lucid dreaming, and I'm going down that process. If at any time I find this 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 project boring or I'm not a fan of it or whatever, right, I'll move on. There have been projects, a bunch of projects that I've started that I'm like, Ugh, I just don't like this. I just don't like doing it. One of them was a One Minute Life Hack podcast. I started it, recorded about 10 to 20 episodes, and then I just stopped because I'm like, this feels like work. It doesn't feel like fun. Now, could it have become successful? Maybe. Would I want it to become successful? Probably not, because that's... I don't want to do something that, quote-unquote, feels like work. You know, I've done enough of tedium and, uh, you know, like there's... To, to, to let my creative outlets feel like that. I'm not saying that it's bad to, you know, do work for money. Obviously, we all have to survive, but... I want my creative outlets to be a form of self-expression that I enjoy expressing. And that project felt like work. I started, another example of something that I've started and then stopped was photography. Now, I haven't necessarily stopped it, but I realized that I'm not a good enough photographer. I don't enjoy the art form enough to really focus on it, to be able to get a consistent amount of photo photographs up and online and posted and do whatever I want to do with those. What I found myself doing was Rather than seeing and trying to capture a moment, I was trying to force those moments. And by forcing those moments, I I didn't really, it didn't feel as good. And the quality of the photographs weren't that great. And I'm like, oh, this just doesn't, it, it's just not representative of me. So I stopped it. Now, if I get it, if I take another good photo, I'll share it. But I'm not going to put myself out there as a photographer. But what, what did I lose from trying it? I gave it a shot. I thought about it. I put some up, some up there, got some good and bad feedback, whatever. If I enjoyed the process, if it was something that appealed to me, now I know. Now I know that this is something I want to push for and keep going on with. 
So I just want to highlight the fact that people that you see that are successful, you don't know what they've gone through, and it's easy to look back at, at their decisions and think them wonderful. But really, it's a combination of hard work and latching onto the successes and letting go of the failures. I'm a massive fan of Gary Vaynerchuk. If you haven't heard of him, do a Google search and just follow him on anywhere because he's everywhere. And, you know, he's an entrepreneur, he's done a bunch of stuff, but he just posted something and it basically said, people think that you need to be, go one and no, as in you have one fight and you win one and you lose, lose none. And that's what entrepreneurship is about. One big win. But he's like, no, no, no. I want to go 128 to 89 in the sense that he's winning more than he's losing. And some of those wins are going to be huge and he'll cut off the losses but he doesn't care that he's had the losses. Overall, he's winning. Now, that's obviously geared towards the entrepreneurial money frame, and obviously I've been talking about that a little bit here. But I like to put that down as a life approach. What if I really enjoyed photography? Now that would count as a win, and I'd be pursuing that path. The fact that it counts as lost, yeah, I wasted some time, but who cares, right? Now I know I answered that question. This same approach has applied to me for martial arts. I did a lot of striking, Muay Thai and karate, right, for a bunch of time. And then some stuff happened. I left my I left the gym I was training at and I was sort of a bit lost. And I'm like, hmm, what should I try? What should I do? And before settling on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the martial art that I've been doing now for like five years and love, I tried a bunch. I tried doing ninjutsu, right? Hmm? It, it's, it was terrible. It was absolute bullshit, it, completely ineffective. The instructor shouldn't be teaching, and he's probably duping people out of money. But I tried it, and now I know. I also tried some other, other different styles. I tried Wing Chun, and whilst there are some benefits, I, don't, I didn't really connect with it, and I thought that the style thought that it was a bit different to what it actually was. wasn't a big fan. I tried Tai Chi. Tai Chi is more internal style and meditative style. Now, I've kept that going. I practice that myself most mornings. Then I stumbled upon and sort of, well, revisited Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I love it. So my failures of trying those different martial arts has led me to something that is a, a core aspect of my personality. It's a core aspect of my physical training, of my social life, of a whole bunch of things in my world. But had I not have risked failure i.e. trying the other styles, maybe I wouldn't have found it. And even within the act of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, once I knew that that was the style I wanted to do, I then had to try a bunch of different gyms until I found the gym that I was comfortable with, the instructor that I liked, the culture that I liked, the people that I liked, the facilities that I liked, the location that I liked. I had to try a few to make sure that the one I was going to fit. Do I count those trials and the time I spent at the other places, a loss? Not really, because it's led me to somewhere good. Now, will this, in five years, will I be able to look back at this and go, ah, oh, I made the right choice. I knew, I knew what I was doing. Maybe, but I'll know all of the failures that it took to get me there, right? Someone will see me training or see my ability or see me doing whatever it is. And we're just using jujitsu, but it could be writing, it could be podcasting, it could be anything. I know all of the failures and all the issues and all the struggles that I face to get there. The person will only see the end result. I've been training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for five years or so now. 
But people that see me training at the gym I'm training at don't see the trials of the other different martial arts. They don't see the trials at the different gyms. They don't see the self-doubt or the indecision or all that sort of stuff. They just see where I am now. So I would encourage you to try to continue to push through, to trust your intuition and to do things that make you feel good. Do things that feel right. Do things that suggest a path that you should take, that you're comfortable taking over the long term. So it's with this in mind that I'm going to read to you another chapter of my first book, Under the Influence Reclaiming My Childhood. Now, the reason I'm reading this chapter to you and the reason I'm sort of getting through this book is because it feels like I need to close this door. This book was the first book I wrote and it, it, I just need to have it done. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, and yet, yeah, I could just not read it. I could just put it down and put it aside. But one of the things that I like to do here across all of my channels is share everything that I'm doing for free. And that's the reason why I started this podcast with Patreon support, because, you know, people that buy the books or support what I'm doing through Patreon or other means are able, uh, are quite good at helping me to, 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 to sort of justify doing this. But I release everything I do for free because I want to be able to give back to people that have helped me. Well, not necessarily give back, but pay it forward. And, you know, this book and how to get shit together and everything else that I'm doing, I want it to be able to help people. I want it to be able to, to provide the help that I wish I had when I was growing up. Because when I moved out of home at 15, I was too poor to buy a book. I was literally living off government su governmental support and charity handouts and all of that sort of stuff. So I figure that if I put everything out that I do for free, the people that enjoy it might buy it. Other people might support me through Patreon. And the people that need it can get it for free. They can get access to it. Now, why Under the Influence? This book was the first book I wrote as you know, a proper book. It's, it's this basically was, well, the title suggests it. it's reclaiming my childhood. It's me talking about the significant impacts of things that happened to me in my past. Now, writing it enabled me to look back upon my past and sort of reframe it from an adult perspective. And every time I look at it, it gives me a sort of a new approach to it. I'm able to relook it, to reown it and to sort of grow from it. But with all that in mind, it's it's hard, it's painful, it's, it's, it, it, it hurts me. But because I've said that I would release it and I want to release it and I get benefit from it as well as the pain, I'm going to make my way through it. So that's why I've been reading the chapters of this book over the last, you know, bunch of podcasts. So anyway, I'm almost through. <laughs> this chapter that I'm going to read is called The Carrion Feeder. The morning... <clears throat> the morning that I found out that Dad had passed away, I drove over to his house. I knew the process of sorting through his possessions couldn't wait at all. It had to be done that day. One of Dad's neighbours, Jackie, had called to let me know that Dad had passed and that his house had already been robbed. She was distraught, wailing over the phone, coughing the details out between cascades of sobs. Poor lady. They were so close, and now she was stuck living there on her own. She was probably the closest friend that my dad ever had. They'd spend hours at each other's house every day drinking coffee and making art together. Dad, of course, was her dealer. She was a very interesting lady, to say the least. She spoke in a raspy voice developed from years of chain smoking. 
Every sentence ended with a prominent wheezing cough. Sometimes it would last so long, I would wonder if she was going to die then and there from lack of oxygen. Her mental health was perpetually in a state of flux, regularly veering from slightly erratic to literally institutionalised and back. It never was like... It was like she was always stoned in some capacity, never quite there. That being said, of all Dad's friends, I liked her the most. At least with her, I could have some semblance of a conversation. She would ask about my school and my work, making sure to remember most of the details of her previous conversations and inquiring further. Sadly, this was a rarity in Dad's circles. She seemed to legitimately appreciate my dad, caring about him on a deeper level than just his ability to provide her with drugs. Over the years, I never heard Dad speak ill of her. She had never ripped him off, and she would always call him a true friend who understood who he was. Out of Dad's friends, Jackie was the exception, not the rule. These people were all varying degrees of crazy and seemingly addicted to everything. At best, they were like seagulls, begging for scraps and cleaning up your waste. They would always be asking for cash, pestering your dad for some more, pestering dad for some more drugs, promising to pay him back as soon as they came into some some money, only there for the goods they could scavenge off him. Poor dad, who was too nice, who would always give in and feed the seagulls. But as you know, seagulls are never satisfied. They always want more and more, squawking loudly, demanding another chip, talk, taking as much as you'll give them even faking the loss of a leg to con you into giving up more of your lunch. Finally, when you run out of food, they leave without so much as a thank you. If you're lucky, they won't shit on you when they depart in search of their next sucker with a picnic lunch. Maybe Dad didn't realise that if you give people like that a free gift, they won't appreciate it for long. They'll soon be back for more, probably bringing their friends along with them. At worst, these people were like vultures, picking at the flesh of a newly deceased corpse for whatever carry-on they can find. Dan would always talk about being ripped off by his friends. Rarely, rarely would he elaborate into the specifics of how they ripped him off, but it was not hard, it was not hard to put the pieces together. It was clear that they'd done some kind of deal that went south, or they'd just rubbed him outright. One time, when I was in year seven, Dad was fixing up a push bike so I could cycle to school instead of walking. Nothing new or flashy, but still quite useful. Like most of his promises, this one was also broken. Dad told me a friend had ripped him off, taken the bike and gone. He said that he lent it to a friend who needed to write down to the shops for food. Being the nice guy that Dad was, he lent him the bike for the day, but requested that he return it later that night. And with that, his friend left. Two days later, his friend came back on foot, asking Dad for some more weed. Furious, Dad demanded that he return the bike. Turns out the junkie had ridden down the street to another dealer and offered it in, trade, in a trade for his next high. This lowlife didn't offer any more explanation than that. Having barely hissed out his, his half-baked apology, he asked once more for some weed. To his credit, Dad slammed the door in his face, adding that man's name to the ever-growing list of people who he could no longer trust, those who had ripped him off. Apparently, it doesn't take much for a seagull to evolve into a vulture. I hated those people, all of them. Every day would bring someone new, another gutter-dwelling creep out to score a hit. The whole situation was toxic and terrifying, particularly given the fact that it was occurring in front of two young children. They would all have the same vibe about them, desperate, poor, and hungry, each one craving something more than food. Looking into their eyes, you would see only the shell of a human, the shell of a human, single-minded in their desire to get high, like a vaguely hung-together blob of flesh-covering bones searching for sustenance. You could see through them, like they were nothing. They were nothing. Alarmingly, the worst of all of them was living right next door. Just for a moment, consider your neighbours. Really think hard about their character. 
vividly picture them in your mind. If you're lucky, they're just nice people who, who, who you randomly say hi to as you leave for the morning for work. Perhaps you occasionally have them over for dinner or to walk your dogs together. If you're unlucky, they might play music a little too loud or may not tend to their lawns in a matter that is becoming enough of the quality of a street. If you're my dad, however, you live next to somebody who would go on to literally steal from your lifeless corpse. Grant lived next door for the last 10 or so years of dad's life. This guy was beyond comp- comprehension. It was all kinds of messed up. He made my dad look like a sophisticated gentleman, living in opera in a tailored Armani suit. Think of the most vile and disgusting individual you came across. Add to that a severe drug hat, habit. No particular drug, just all of them, at once. He had deadened, soulless shells for eyes and a constantly dishevelled appearance. A rank smell, no morals, and the conversational skills of a baked potato. That, and he thought he was Jesus. I think the correct term for his condition would be something akin to schizophrenia with symptoms including extreme visual and auditory hallucinations combined with delusions of grandeur and paranoia. He believed himself to be the second coming of Jesus, literally spray-painting God lives here on his front door. He was in the process of rewriting the Bible, desiring to deliver a new truth to the world, a modern revelation. Volumes and volumes of rambling consisting of half-completed notes on scrap paper, newspaper cutouts and some printed work. This is where he wrote his teachings. It was a new gospel that would save the world. He would often describe instances of talking to God, seeing angels and hearing voices that would guide him. I wonder what they had to say. If it was true that he was following their instructions to the letter, perhaps they said something along the lines of, Grant, this is God. Go forth, my child, and write a new Bible. The people will listen and will come to you as a sheep comes to the protection of the shepherd. But more importantly, Grant, be sure to always, always be inebriated. Find and consume every drug that is being put on this earth, for it is being put there for you. Lie still and cheat your way to this goal. Leave no stone unturned, and no man unmolested in your quest. Only then will you be able to complete, completely convey my revelations. Only then will the people listen. Combine that with the severe and overarching paranoia of the government listening, wiretapping, mind reading, or knowing his plans, and you're left with a completely unstable individual. I can't possibly hope to understand the inner workings of somebody in his situation. However, what I do know is that he represented a significant threat to all of our safety. I had the displeasure of going to his house once, probably to reclaim a lost ball erroneously kicked over the adjoining fence line. Grant's, Grant's house made my dad's house look like a pristine palace. He took hoarding to another level, almost as if he seen dad's house and was so impressed by its look that he wanted it for himself, but just more extreme. Can't imagine how many discarded needles would await the poor soul who was tasked with cleaning up the mess when he died. As Grant was dad's neighbour, and dad was his... As Grant was Dad's neighbour and Dad was his dealer, Grant was always popping by. For years I was exposed to this guy's incessant ramblings, constant demands for drugs, and an ever-present feeling that he would one day just snap. This was a guy who you could never quite read properly. He was very erratic and never quite there. As such, when he was around, I was always on edge, thinking that maybe today will be the day where he loses his shit and shanks us all with a machete. Maybe today will be the day where his cravings are too overwhelming for him, Instead of buying the drugs, maybe he decides to just take them, killing us in the process. Perhaps today would be the day where I accidentally respond to his incoherent ramblings in the wrong way, insulting what is left of his shattered ego. Physically, he was nothing much. Average size, quite skinny and weak. But give someone like that a motive and a weapon, it could end up being another sad news report, warning the populace of the dangers of drugs. Suffice to say, he was a major contributor to my highly strung and anxious state of mind. Dad didn't do much to allay this fear either. 
I remember going into his room and showing and him showing me a steel crow, crowbar, him handing it to me and saying, I keep this here in case, in case Grant gets out of hand, or I can't make him leave. I'll bop him on the head if needed. I think he was showing at me to demonstrate that he was looking after all of our safety, suggesting that he would protect us if needed. But if your only safety mechanism is a, is a weapon, things are bound to get messy. I remember one night at 3am there was a knocking on my dad's window. It was gushing with rain and wind was blowing through the streets causing a low whistling sound between the close apartment blocks. Being that, the dad, being that my dad's room was right next to mine, I quickly woke up and could easily hear what was happening. Outside the house stood Grant. He was sopping wet and desperately knocking on dad's window hoping to score. When there was no response, his intensity grew. He began smashing the windows harder and harder with his fists, punching through one in the process. That's when he noticed Dad outside, crowbar in hand, wanting him to leave. Given the time of night and the weather conditions, I can't be sure exactly what happened. However, Grant did not come back that night. In fact, when we did see him, we didn't see him for at least a week. Despite this, Grant was still allowed over and Dad was still his dealer, selling something to soothe the pain for his now lacerated arm. This incident, and many others like it, made a peaceful night's sleep quite challenging. The constant fear of home invasion from your crazy, drugged-up neighbour would do that. To this day, I struggle when it comes to bedtime. On bad nights, it takes hours for me to fall asleep. Even then, I often wake at the smallest noises. I guess I'm still on guard. On the day of Dad's death, I arrived at his house and was greeted by a distraught Jackie. I went inside and found my father's body slumped peacefully against the workbench, with his small terrier quivering by his side. Through tears and sobs, Jackie explained how his death was discovered. It turned out that it was Grant who found him. According to Jackie, Grant was looking to score that night and proceeded to use his usual routine of knocking on Dad's window and door in the middle of the night. Apparently, Dad, apparently Grant could see Dad's unresponsive body through the window, and when he couldn't rouse him, he decided to break into the house through the bathroom. When he approached Dad and couldn't wake him, Grant proceeded to call an ambulance. I was okay with Grant to this point. Yeah, he broke in most likely with the intent of scoring a hit. Nevertheless, he did the right thing by calling the ambulance. Maybe the, maybe there was some good left in him. I was wrong. Once the initial shock of seeing my father's lifeless body subsided, I surveyed the room. It was clear that it had been ransacked, looted, looted for anything of value. All the cash, drugs, and any other pawnable possessions were taken. That worthless excuse for a human stole from my dad, stripping his body whilst it was still warm. I could forgive Grant for taking the drugs. Attending ambulance officers or police officers would most likely have taken and destroyed them, and in his eyes that would have been a waste. Fair enough, I can see his point. But what I can't forgive is that he took it, is that he took it and everything else. I found Dad's wallet and its contents emptied in a pile beside its body. The money was only a part of it. What hurt more was the personal belongings that he also took, things of little monetary worth like his art and knickknacks, stuff he couldn't trade for anything other than a memory. Earlier that week I'd visited Dad in hospital. He'd been in and out for the last few months, always seeming to bounce back to his normal self. However, the years of chain smoking were finally catching up with him. This time, emphysema and other res respiratory complications had accumulated with him staying in the ICU and, requir and requiring the assistance of a breathing machine. Knowing it was close to the end, he had withdrawn all of his savings. He wanted to give me the couple of hundred dollars in cash then and there, but the hospital had stored his wallet in a safe and it would have been a big hassle to organise its release. Given his condition, and because I was not in need of money, I told him that it was okay and he should hold on to it for when he gets out. He agreed, and when the hospital released him, he picked up his wallet and went home. Dad knew he was dying, and wanted us to leave with something. Leave us with something. Grant saw to us that he didn't. Given that Grant's house, given, given that Dad's house had already been robbed, it was imperative that I sort through his belongings that day. 
didn't want Grant or some other vulture to come through that night and take any more items that happened to catch their eye. I'm not sure if I could have handled it. So the massive process began, sorting through his hoard, a lifetime of collecting placed into many boxes. Most of it was worthless junk, which he left to the cleaners, but some was quite sentimental. I have a small collection of display in my house, and I'm glad that I have something to remember him by. During this process, Grant walked out of his house and was coming over to greet me. My initial reaction was sheer rage. I wanted to knock him out cold, slam him onto the concrete driveway and stomp on his face until it was unrecognisable. Luckily, my wife was by my side and managed to keep me from doing something that would have been highly regrettable, would have been highly regrettable, albeit quite satisfying. He took my hand and shook it, and with his typical drug-induced slur, Grant gave his condolences. Your father, he was a good man, Zacky, did you know? Last, last night, I saw him, you know, like in a vision. He was surrounded, escorted to heaven by a dozen golden soldier angels. They had amazing, beautiful armor, glistening and radiant. This went on and on, and in a glorious white light, he was gone. I don't know what he was thinking, saying someone to that, something like that to somebody who'd just seen their dad's dead body. Maybe he was just trying to be consoling or comforting. Perhaps in his twisted world, that's what he believed people wanted to hear. Nobody wants to hear that, particularly not from somebody like him. A year later, I was walking through the shopping centre and lo and behold, Grant was there. Without hesitation, he had the audacity to ask for some more of Dad's artwork. Just something to remember him by. I just walked away. I'm so saddened that my father didn't have the strength of will or the desire to rid himself of Grant or the other vultures. I cannot imagine the constant stress that interacting with them daily for years on end would have caused. Who knows, perhaps he's felt alone in this world, and was grateful for the company that he had. I felt guilty on and off for years, plagued by the possibility that because I stopped visit him, visiting him early on, he turned more and more to those kinds of people, trying to fulfil the gap left in his heart caused by his son not visiting him. Or maybe he was just an addict, who dealt, with him, who dealt to sustain his habit. At least with people like Grant in his life, he was sure a steady supply of customers. So that chapter was called Carrion Feeder from my book, Under the Influence, Reclaiming My My Childhood. If you want to read or listen to the entire book, you can do so. It's out now as a paperback ebook and audio. Um, I'll put links down in the show notes, um, but it's available on Amazon if you search for it. But like I said, I'll be over time, hopefully soon, getting all of it out um, for free. But I wanted to, before I sort of go in depth of how you can support the podcast and what I'm doing here, I just wanted to sort of follow up on a couple of things from that chapter. Number one, Dad's dog is still alive. Seven or eight years later, it's, the dog's called Bandit. She's going strong, but she's she's on her way out at the moment. She's, she's not the most healthiest, but she's probably like 20-something now. And sadly, when, when she's actually living with my mum, and when she first took her on for the first few months at least, maybe three or more, she was shaking. And part of that was, you know, the fear of a new place and, you know, missing my father. But another major part of it was literal withdrawals from weed. My dad was constantly smoking over and over and over again. And going to my mum's house, she basically went cold turkey. She doesn't do it anymore, but for a good while there, she would have been going through withdrawal symptoms, which... Wouldn't have been pleasant. Um, The second thing I wanted to follow up on that chapter was about Grant and Jackie and the other people from my father, father's past. I'm pretty certain that everyone that was around at that time, my father 
Jackie Grant, all of the people, they're all dead. It leaves me with the inability to ask questions or follow up or do anything. So I'm sort of left with my memories and asking the people that were around still what they knew. But like, you know, my brother was a child younger than I was. and it's, it's There's a lot of issues there. But I can still sort of go through that process. Writing that book, you can tell there's a lot of emotionality and a lot of anger and a lot of that sort of stuff. It's been a long time since I've written that book, maybe five or seven years even. Like it's a long, it's a long time. So since then, my I've sort of let go a lot of a lot of the issues and a lot of the stuff. I still have a lot of unresolved issues and a lot of, a lot of questions that I have that I wish could have been answered, but I'm able to forgive more. I'm able to forgive my father, and even potentially someone like Grant. Yes, what he did was bad. Yes, it was upsetting. However, everyone's just a product of their environment and their upbringing and their genetics. Now, would I ask him to be like that and do that again? Definitely not. Did I feel safe around him? Certainly not. Would I wish that I didn't have to deal with him in my life? Of course. But who knows what was going on in his life? From my perspective now, as a 32-year-old adult, I can see it from a completely different perspective than I did as a young, insecure, insecure child. So there's a little bit of stuff like that. I want to encourage people that if you can relate to that chapter or you want to talk about it more, please connect with me via my website at zacharyhartfromphillips.com or on social at Zach P. Phillips and, and send me a message, send me a DM and talk to me about the stuff that I'm, I'm talking about here because every time I release a chapter like this, I inevitably get a, a, a couple of people that connect to it in depth and really sort of go, oh my God, you're saying things that happened to me, you know, the, the things that I'm thinking you've put into words. It happens every time, and that's part of the reason why I'm sharing it, because if you've had a similar past to mine, traumatic past, drug-affected parents, yada yada, we've had a similar story. So the stuff that I've gone through, you could relate to, and then we can connect and communicate and just, you know, not feel so alone. So yeah, like I said, that's, that's the book, Under the Influence Reclaiming My Childhood. It's out now. Grab yourself a copy. And if if you do want to support the podcast, I would very much love if you could head over to patreon.com slash Zach P. Phillips. I'll put it, put it down, link down in the show notes. Patreon is a website that enables people to provide monthly contributions, you know, small amounts, $1, $5, whatever you can afford each month that allows content creators like myself to be able to constantly put out, you know, to give them a basically an income. The, the amount of time and effort that I put into this, and I'm going to keep doing it, is is significant. It means every hour that I put into this means that it's hours that I can't be doing my disability support work or teaching or whatever else I would be doing to, you know, support myself and support my family. So obviously I'm limited by time. I'm limited by money. We all need to have money in order to survive. And it's hard for me to ask, but I I find myself with this moral dilemma of going, I want to put my stuff out there for free and I want to do that as much as possible. But how can I do that in a way that is sustainable for me over the long, long, long term? I want to be doing this for the rest of my life. So I encourage people, if they want to support the podcast by buying the book, please do so. If you think the podcast in general and all of the stuff that I'm doing online, the blogs, the videos, everything I'm doing is worth supporting ongoing, Patreon is a great way to do it because it basically enables me to see how much I'll be getting each month and then I can plan accordingly. 
right? It enables me to go, okay, I can put some stuff aside. I can go, I can dedicate a day here or there. I can put that money to pay rent, pay for food, etc. I can dedicate this time, time to shooting the videos, time to, to writing, to responding, doing all of the stuff I'm doing. If you're not in a place to do that, you're, you're exactly why I'm asking other people to support, right? All of this is about developing a community and supporting each other. So if you're in a place, head over to patreon.com slash Zach P. Phillips. Support me however you can. If you can't, hey, thank you for listening. I, what can I say? I, I get so much from hearing and responding and talking and connecting with all of you. So have a good one. Cheers. Thank you.